If I can just ask you to please stand up as we read from God's word, from John chapter 1, verse 1 to 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There is a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was, this was he of whom I said he was coming after me, ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. And the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Father God, we want to thank you for the reading of your word. This is your word. We pray that you'd speak to us, Lord, and for each of our needs. I'm incapable, Lord. And so we pray that you would speak to us Amen. in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We've been looking at doctrines. And uh, over the past uh, three weeks, two weeks ago, we looked at Trinity. <clears throat> and last week, we saw God the Father. And today, we want to see uh, God the Son. Uh, when, we, when we introduced this, we said there are two mysteries in Christianity. The first one is the mystery of the Trinity. We said one God, one nature in three persons. One nature, three persons. And then we said the second mystery was the duality of Christ. Two natures, one person. And so today we want to come, come back and see. J.I. Packer said this, there are two mysteries for the price of one. Plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. Uh, when we talk about the uh, doctrine of the Son or the doctrine of the Son of God, we can talk in terms of two things. One is the personhood of God and the other is the work of God, the work of Christ, sorry, the, the personhood of Christ and the work of Christ. And yet we cannot really separate that because the work of Christ is so involved in the personhood of Christ. And so though we can differentiate it, we don't want to separate it. Uh, but over the next two weeks, this will be our en endeavor to see what is it that we can get from, uh, from what God's word is telling us about his son. Uh, it is said that there, are, there have been about 40 billion people who lived on the face of this world. 
And the one thing that binds all of them, the one vital thing that ties them all up together is what they will do with the Son of God. The personal relationship that he calls them to. And that's vital. It's important. Uh, Emily Post, who was an etiquette uh, specialist, she was asked this question. If I receive an invitation from the White House, but I have a prior engagement, what's the best way to respond to say, no, I cannot come? And this is what she wrote. She said, an invitation to dine at the White House is a command, and it automatically cancels any other engagement. Now, I want to say that I can't really overstate the importance of knowing and acknowledging the personhood and the work of Christ. And this is important for us. And so the question, the title that I looked at, uh, that we said, what are we going to, who, who do you say I am? Who do people say I am? And Peter answers that question, doesn't he? He says, you are Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus affirms that. And, and he says, based on that truth, I will build my church on that. And uh, so the question I think we, we want to ask ourselves is, who do we say Christ is? Who do we say Jesus is? And that's my prayer. My prayer is that we be able to see the glory of God as sh- shown to us through the Son of God. That we will be caught up. That the work of the personhood of Christ and the work of Christ would impact us in this life and impact us for eternity. And so we looked at Uh, what we want to do is look at John. And what John does right at the beginning is uh, what you would do. Like when you meet meet strangers, or you meet two people, what do you do? The three questions you might ask is, what's your name? What do you do? Where are you from? And that's what John starts to uh, explain to us. Uh, When we talk about the life of Christ on this earth, we have four biographies, you know, the four Gospels. And I like that how God would give to us through his word a narrative, uh, uh, you know, a life as it were, not just, you know, the theory part of it. It's so practical as he's laid out. And so we know when Matthew talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, he talks about the prophesied king. Uh, Mark talks about him as the obedient servant. The Lord, uh, Luke talks about the perfect man. And when you come to John, he talks about the mighty God. Right? Uh, you, you look at John. All the synoptic gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, the first three, they, they start with the Christmas narrative. But when it comes to John, he doesn't start with the Christmas narrative. He, he in fact, presents to us an adult Christ. But you know what he does? He doesn't start at Christmas. He starts far beyond, back in the past, right at the back. He goes, takes us to in the beginning. In the beginning. And what the phrase of the passage that we read is called the prologue. That's what the scholars call it. What's a prologue? And so you'd want to ask what a prologue is, right? You want to ask, what's a prologue? Okay, what's a prologue? You need to ask, what's a prologue? Okay. A prologue is if you take a text, uh, if you take a book, uh, right at the beginning, before the chapters start, you have the preface. It will set the context to the text. It'll tell you what's going to happen. It gives you an introduction to the background. And 
what's happening is just that. He wants to introduce to us the word. The word. Now, what John is also doing is he's taking us from the known, his readers, that is especially, from the known to the unknown. Uh, what do I mean by that? Yeah, as, as, a, you know, as a teacher, as a trainer, you would understand that if you want to tell your students about certain concepts, you have to start with something that they can understand and build it up. And that's what John is doing. The, the word logos was not new to either the Hebrews or the Greek. If you take the Greeks, for example, those were his readers. If you take the Greeks, for example, that word logos was there in their literature, in the Hellenistic literature, in the Greek literature, even past uh, up to about 500 B.C., they acknowledged that when they looked at creation, they said that's a divine reason. There's, there's a divine reason that's responsible for creation. Logos that they called. We get the word logical. You see, it's a reason. And, and so uh, the Greeks understood what logos is. But logos they considered to be impersonal. Not a personal God, as you and I know, but an impersonal force. You know, we've heard of that phrase often, let the force be with you. Uh, the, the word that, uh, or, you know, what they say, the intelligent design, it's actually a cop-out to creative design. It, it, it's to say that we understand, looking at the design, that there's a designer. But they don't acknowledge that designer as a personal God, as a person who can interact with us. Einstein, for example, we spoke about that many times. So Greeks understood what Logos was, the divine reason. Then you have the Jews. The Jews, even right at the beginning in Genesis 1, 1, it's in a, sorry, chapter 1, verse 3, and as you go down, he says, and God spoke. The prophets, they would say, thus says the Lord. Uh, so they understood that the word, and they would personify it. You get to uh, Proverbs 8. We see wisdom being personified. Uh, Psalm 138, verse 2 your word and your name you have exalted above all. And so they had no problem with logos, or the word being personified. And, 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 and John says, let's begin there. And he starts to introduce. And then he says, in the beginning was the word. You see, it parallels, we know, Genesis 1.1. And there are other parallels too as he compared it with Genesis. And then he says, this logos was an eternal logos. It was a pre-existent logos from New English Bible. It says, when all things began, the word already was. That's pre-existent. The eternality of logos. And then it says, the word was with God. It talks about relationship, a face-to-face relationship. What's, this word was co-existent. And then it goes on to say, the word was God. It was self-existent. That it was not created, it wasn't begotten as in given birth to, it's monogenous, which means uh, monogenous, which means unique. This logos. Logos is the, uh, John is trying to say, is the purpose fulfilled. All the law, the prophets spoke about this logos. Logos is God's greatest expression, if you would, according to Hebrews 1. Logos is what God had to say. 
And then what he does is he continues to expand about Logos. In verse, uh, in verse 3, he shows Logos as the creator. Verse 4, he says Logos is the revealer, the true light which enlightens everyone. And then you get to chapter 12, verse 12, it says Logos is the savior to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the child of God. He introduces Logos and he says, having said all that, this is where it gets interesting. Verse 12, it says, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Hey, Greeks, the Logos that you knew as an impersonal God is not an impersonal word. He became flesh. Hebrews, I want you to understand it's not, a, it's not word personified. He is a person, and this person is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He wants to bring that connection to say this person is God. And um, we read from Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Christ in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. That's what John wants to let his readers know. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. When we get to John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, we see the objective with which he's writing this, right? He's telling, he, 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 right at the end, he's saying, why did I write the whole thing? I'm saying many other signs, therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these were written that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so what John is really doing is what our topic is. He presents to us Jesus of Nazareth, the personhood and the work of Christ. He does that. And so what I want to do is very quickly walk you through some of the examples and some of the things that he does so that we are affirmed in our minds who Jesus is. And then ask the question, that is the crux of it. What are we going to do with him? Who do we say this Jesus is? In the prologue, we already saw that he talks about creation, that the word was the creator. He is also the light, and he goes on to say, but I want to I bring to you three characters that John presents in his narrative. Three characters who had close interaction with Jehovah God of the Old Testament, have interacted with him, have seen, as it were, like Moses, uh, has seen, have seen his glory. And so let's take Moses. Exodus 33, we won't turn there, but Exodus 33 is a great chapter because that is after Moses has come down and he sees the children of Israel have gone whoring after this golden calf. And God is saying, I'm going to destroy this nation. And what Moses does is he takes the tabernacle of God and he pitches it outside the camp And he calls it the tent of the meeting so that when Moses would get up, they would stand by their tents because Moses then would go into the tabernacle. And what catches my attention is right there when when Moses comes, you know, there's this understanding of the holiness of, of God. It's at that moment he asks God, says, I want to see your glory. The very holiness that could have, you know, uh, killed them, Moses understands. And 
God answers his prayer. And we know how he's kept in the cleft of the rock and he sees the hindermost parts of, of God, we read. And that's what John says here. This word tabernacled among us, verse 14. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God but, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Emmanuel, not just God uh, at the tent of the meeting, but God with us. This inaccessible God is now made accessible through Jesus Christ. Then you get to Abraham. You know, in verse uh, chapter 8 and verse 56, this is what Jesus says. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He was talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Earlier he had said in John chapter 5 verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness of me. And then in Chapter 8, verse 58, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John is saying, Jesus himself affirmed to this fact that the law and the prophets were pointing to this. They were speaking about him. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is reminding that I am the great I am. He is the great I am. The great I am. Then I get to Isaiah. Chapter 12 of John. In verse 41, it says, Isaiah said these things because he, that is Isaiah, saw his, which is the glory of Christ, and spoke of him. In verse 38, he makes reference to Isaiah 53. In verse 40, he makes reference to the time. Remember the time in chapter 6 when Isaiah sees the glory of God? It's the same context. It's taken out from there. And it's applied here. John is trying to say this. Isaiah has seen the pre-existent Christ in his glories. That's what we read when we read John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the unique one who himself is God is near to Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. He has revealed God to us. Jesus of Nazareth. What does John do? He doesn't stop there. He, we know as we read the book of John that, that he brings out the seven I am's, showing that this is, this is the I am. He also picks and chooses the seven miracles that Jesus does, and he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs as indicating signs are the ones that point, saying, look at him. Jesus of Nazareth, Jehovah incarnate, God in human flesh. Fully man and fully God. It's interesting as you read uh, the book of John, we always say that John is, uh, presents to him as the son of God. That's true. But he also takes care to show to us that Jesus was also man. That Jesus was also man. Let me read to you some of the verses. John chapter 1 verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh. John chapter 4, verse 6, Jesus grew tired. John chapter 11, 35, Jesus wept. 
John chapter 13 and 21, Jesus was troubled in his soul. John 17, Jesus prays to the Father. John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus got thirsty. John chapter 20 and verse 20 and verse 27, Jesus had a real human body after resurrection, albeit glorified. And John is the only one who gives the full title that was put on his cross, um, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I'm not sure if that caught your attention. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and we already know from the beginning of this chapter of this book, it says Nazareth. What good comes out of Nazareth? And this is King of the Jews. An oxymoron, if you would call, an irony, if you would call, and yet John is trying to present to us fully God and fully man. This is Jesus. What these scholars call this is the hypostatic union. And I had to come to that so that we can understand. They call it the hypostatic union. Hypostatic means personal or natural. The personal union of Jesus is two natures. The word is used uh, best if you would get from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Let me read that to you. Where, where Jesus is said to be the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature or hypostasis. The nature in Jesus Christ, we see this nature. Two natures, one person. Hebrews 11.1, 1, where it says, faith is the substance or the hypostasis of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The nature of this personhood of Christ. And it says that we can summarize biblical teaching about the person of Christ and this, that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. And I want you to understand when I say fully man and fully God, not 100% man and 100% God. That doesn't make, that's not what we are saying. He's fully God, fully man. It's not about percentages. It's about two natures, indivisible and not not dissolved, but two natures, in one person. It was so important that there was this creed of Chalcedon that, was, uh, that met together to explain, put words to this doctrine. And I want to read the five things that they came up with that it, you know, it, it stays with us. Jesus has two natures. He is God and man. Second, each nature is full and complete. He is fully God and fully man. Third, Each nature remains distinct. Fourth, Christ is only one person. Fifth, things that are true of one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. The thing that is true of one nature is true of the person of Christ. And I think the rest four, the first four were okay. Let me explain to you very quickly what I mean by the fifth one. We... We understand that God cannot die. And to say that, you know, Christ's death as the death of God is wrong. We know humans die. And Jesus' human nature died. And even though Jesus' divine nature did not die, we can say that the person of Christ experienced death because of the union of two natures in the person of Christ. So, The death was experienced in the human nature of Christ. And because of that, we can say the personhood of Christ 
in some way, mysterious way, has experienced death. And it is not the death of God. Some, sometimes we do have songs that, that go, you, you God who died for me. And doctrinally, if you really look at it, that would be in, inaccurate. It's in the uniqueness of this person that we are talking about today, this subject that makes for our eternal difference is where we have this possibility. So let me just recap this. Jesus did not turn into a man. He did not stop being God and started being a man. Jesus did not give up any of his divinity in his incarnation. Christ was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. Jesus did not give up any of his divine attributes at incarnation. He remained in full possession of all of them. For if he ever were to give up any of his divine attributes, he would cease to be God. Okay, so I want you to understand this when we talk about this mystery that it is two natures, one person. And that's the uniqueness of Christ. But the question then I have to ask myself, and the question I'd like to ask you that you would have to ask for yourself is what do you say? Who do you say? That I am. And that was the question that even the Pharisees and the rulers of Israel were asked in Matthew chapter 22, verse 42. Who do you, what do you think about Christ? That's the question that will, uh, on which the pivot or the hinge is. What do you think about Christ? And someone wrote this to the artist, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one altogether lovely. To the architect, he's the chief cornerstone. To the baker, he's the living bread. To the banker, he's the hidden treasure. To the biologist, he is the life. To the builder, he's the sure foundation. To the carpenter, he's the sh- he is the door. The doctor, he's the great physician. To engineer, he's the new and living way. To the farmer, he's the sower and the lord of harvest. To the florist, he's the rose of Sharon and the lily of valley. To the geologist, he's the rock of ages and it goes on but to the Christian he is all in all he is Christ the son of the living God not just a good teacher not just a good man but he is Christ the son of the living God what is he to you today are you willing to lose everything so that you can gain him if not he is nothing to you today Christ must be always all in all. Because in this God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, someone wrote, no one person satisfies the complex, complex longings of a human heart like this God-man Jesus Christ. There's nothing else out there. There's nothing that can fill our heart. You see, the Pharisees, it's, it's written, it's so interesting. These Pharisees were, it's written, were planning to kill him because it says this man receives sinners and eats with them. That was their charge. That's what they could bring against him, that he would eat, with, receive sinners and eat with them. But that's the reason why we praise him today, do we not? That he receives sinners and eats with us. The very fact that the world would reject him, the reason the world would reject him is the reason why you and I are here this morning. And we could praise him. He alone can satisfy. He alone, 
He alone can satisfy. Are you hungry? Don't run after broken systems. Are you looking for success? Don't let your eyes be caught up by the glitter of what the world would give. Career, don't think that you're doing good and well in your job because of some skill that you've got or some great thing that you've got. It's the grace of God that is given to you. We want to be in control, but do you not realize that he is the one who's in control? He's the one who's on the throne. He alone is the God-man. Who is, in him we see the majesty of the king of kings. He can do all things and, and still see the empathy of the humanity for he endured all things. Or oh, that we would stop giving this lip service to this great king. I, I like the, the way that Graham Hendricks writes a song, The Servant King, from heaven you came, you helpless, oh helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve and to give your life that we might live. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. He alone is lovely. Like the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon, we'd be able to say that he is altogether lovely. Somebody would ask you, what does Christ mean to you? If you would be able to say that, it says he is altogether lovely. He's altogether lovely. If he is altogether lovely, I want to ask if he is, why is it that we find so difficult to spend time with him? If he is altogether lovely, why do we not read his love letters, the Bible that he has given us? If he is lovely to us, why is it that we live as our best life has lived here? If he is, then why is it that we're not increasingly becoming like who he is in our lives? And if he is, why doesn't the world around us know about who this person means to us? And if he is, why isn't the joy of the Lord bubbling over? If he is altogether lovely, he will always be altogether lovely. He always is. Well, the question is, is your heart captured by him? By this unique person, the very God, the Jehovah God who, who made God uh, uh, known? Uh, when we plan something and uh, when we plan a wedding, for example, right? We, we want the best. We want the best tailors, the best caterers, the best music, and the list of that best goes on. And yet we have the best of best here. And yet we don't turn to him first for the things that we need. We don't turn to him. We don't trust him fully. We, we have made it about our glory, our emotions, our feelings, our hurt. And we made it so much about us that we betray the true feelings that he is not altogether lovely for us. That it's become something about ourselves. Oh, that we will turn to this Jesus of Nazareth. The word Nazareth we saw, you know, he takes, Jesus of Nazareth is not a title for a king. It's a name that's despised. That he'd come down, take on human form so that you and I could be conformed to his image. 
That's what Christ should mean to us as a community of faith out here. That he would be altogether lovely to us. That he would be our all in all. That our hearts would beat for him. And so that we can say nothing else satisfies except Christ. I want to quickly close with a story that reminds me, and this is uh, supposed to be a true story about Roger Sims. Roger Sims had just finished uh, military service. He was still in uniform, and he had this heavy suitcase as he was walking down the street. He was looking to hitchhike to get home, and as he gave the sign for hitchhiking, there's a sleek new Cadillac that that pulls up, and he, he gives up hope, but that stops and, and he gets to uh, he gets a ride and this person who is well dressed he, he says uh, you know are you going to Chicago because if you are then you're, you're, you're in luck and, and he says uh, Roger says no uh, I'm just going halfway through but thank you and as they continue this ride Roger who's a Christian there's a conviction in his heart to share the gospel and he just restricts himself till about there's about 30 minutes left. And then Roger says, uh, and this gentleman actually is a CEO or owner of a big enterprise called the Hanover Enterprise. And, uh, and he turns to him and says, oh, I've got something very important to tell you. And then he shares the gospel. What happens then is this man pulls up to the side and Roger thinks, okay, I'm going to be evicted right now, but this gentleman pulls up, starts to cry, and commits his life to Christ. They exchange cards and uh, they part ways. After five years, Roger needs to go to Chicago, and as he's getting ready to go, he picks up this business card that's with him so that he can go meet up with this person. And then he goes to Hanover Enterprise and he tells the receptionist, I'd like to meet Mr. Hanover. And the receptionist says that's not possible, but he can meet with his wife. And so the meeting is arranged. And, um, and when uh, the wife meets with him, he says, uh, oh, you met with my husband? He says, yes, when was that? And he says, that was March 7th. He says, I knew that because that was the day that I was released from military. And then the wife says, is there something that happened that day that, you know, you can tell me? And Roger thinks about it and says, should I share or not share? And eventually he says, yes, I did share the gospel with him. And um, this is what happened. So he pulled aside and he committed his life to Christ. I'd like to meet him, Roger says. The wife says, no, you're not able to meet him because that day he died. And I'd been praying for many years that my husband's life would be, would be caught up by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he died that day, with that I walked away from our faith because I thought my God did not answer my prayer. And as she started to cry, she said, how foolish I've been. This word we're talking about, the word of God keeps his word. I want to tell you that. He is altogether lovely. He is faithful. He is true. I'm not sure what you're going through. God knows. But I want to tell you this, my friends. 
brothers and sisters. This word of God, the incarnate word, he is God who's come down in flesh. And he's the one who's come to tabernacle in your heart. In John chapter 14, he begins John chapter 14, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But later in that chapter, as you go, you realize that he's going to come and dwell with us in us with the Father. Till such time we can be with him, he is coming over to our place. That's my God. That's our God. Let's pray and thank him for who he is. Father God, we want to thank you. Thank you for your son. We don't fully understand, Lord, we don't. But we thank you, we cannot fully understand, for you are God alone. But thank you for your son, who has changed our lives. And we pray, Lord, in our faithlessness that we have been, that you'd forgive us, that we would turn our eyes back to you, that we will see how lovely he is. There's nothing in this world would, world would ever capture our attention, that things would grow strangely dim. And may it be true, Lord, not just in just words and lip service, because if you, you are worthy of praise, and if, you, if we have even accounted that, Lord, may our lives show forth to the praise of your glory. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen.